Hey everyone, welcome to Conversation Peace with Patrick Armstrong. I am the titular Patrick, and this is a show where my guests and I discuss what piece of the conversation we aren't talking about, but should be. Special shout out to all my returning listeners and a high five and hello to everyone joining us for the very first time. Thank you so much. The month of May is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, or APAM. It is meant to celebrate and reflect on the history and peoples that make up our beautiful diaspora. As part of that reflection, this month, I'll be sharing nine conversations with friends and folks I greatly admire in the community as we discuss those missing pieces of the Asian American conversation, what we know, what we might not know, and what we can do about it. These are the APAM conversations. My guest today is a sociology doctoral student at Rice University, as well as an author and educator. Her research examines how religious socialization shapes the racial attitudes and political engagement of Asian Americans. And she has served Asian American youth and community-based organizations, as well as taught Asian American studies at San Francisco State University, Laney College, City College of San Francisco, and Oakland Unified School District. It is my honor and privilege to welcome Bianca Mabute-Louis to the show. Hey, Bianca, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Patrick. I'm excited for this. I am very excited for this as well. I'm um, just going to hype you up a little bit more. I've been following your work for a long time. For listeners who may not know, um, you were one of the folks sharing things and resources and, and stories and information that really helped to shape and reframe the way that I thought about myself as Asian American and how, and how I wanted to navigate the work that I do. So it's a big honor for me to be able to sit here and have this conversation with you. Again, thank you so much for this time, uh, for your energy and for everything that we'll talk about today. Um, (laughs) it's all new. You're very welcome. (laughs) Um, all right. So I know I introduced you just a little bit, but for those who may not know who you are, do you mind sharing just a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. Um, I'm currently in Houston, Texas. Um, I've been here for about three years. Before that, I grew up in California, in San Gabriel Valley, which is very heavily Asian ethnoverb. And then I lived in Oakland for about 10, 11 years. Um, And so, you know, all of those places really formed my politics and how I understand myself and how I'm approaching being in a new state where um, it often feels like ground zero for a lot of really intense (laughs) political issues. Um, And so, yeah, and besides the professional stuff, I mean, I'm... Yeah, I have two dogs. I am passionate about eating and finding new restaurants uh, wherever I'm at. And yeah, glad to be here. Any favorite foods or restaurants currently on your mind or that you've been craving a lot recently? Oh my gosh. So in the South, it is current, well, at least Houston, New Orleans area in the Gulf, it is currently crawfish season. Mm. which is only, I think, February to April. And I had come to visit. My partner's from Houston. And so I've come to visit before. And I was like, what is this whole thing with crawfish? And since moving here, I get it. I have become a believer, <laughs> specifically the occasion, though. Um, okay. You know, as an Asian American studies enthusiast and scholar, I'm, I'm very excited when, you know, food kind of represents the political histories of who's been here. But also mm. the occasion is just superior to regular occasion food, in my opinion. So Okay. We've heard it here first, or maybe not but definitely not last. The occasion is the way to go, yeah. the superior version. So I'm gonna have to try that out. I was in Houston for a few months and did not explore as much food as I should have. Very much leaned heavily into the barbecue. And I feel like that's just where I got stuck at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um definitely gonna have to make that happen soon. Um thank you for sharing that. And mm-hmm. 
to be mindful of your time. I want to go ahead and just jump right into the conversation because I'm excited to hear and discuss with you what you feel like is missing. So let me ask you that. Um, what piece of the conversation do you think is missing or that we are just not talking about enough right now when it comes to Asian America or the Asian diaspora specifically? Yeah, I love that prompt, Patrick. And I, um, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about how it's, we're like three days into API Heritage Month. So I'm getting a lot in my newsfeed and emails about the first Asian American CEO of this and the first mm. American that. First Asians in this C-suite and Asian billionaires, right? That's not all of my feed, but I, I noticed right during these months, we tend to really uplift and highlight the first Asian whatever in a lot of times, predominantly white institutions. Mm. So I was thinking about how, you know, what I, I often wish we could talk more about is the limits of Asian American representation and even leadership at times in these, again, white capitalist institutions and thinking more about, you know, what, um, while representation is very important and I'm all about it, I think I would have turned out very differently if I had like black pink growing up, right? Sure. It's all very important, <laughs> but you know, it's ultimately not the end goal. And so really questioning what are we doing with this representation and in what ways are we using our access to create something new or to just, again, replicate white power structures and institutions and systems. Wow. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important piece to think about because I've just been, I've been having conversations recently about the first this, the first that, like you mentioned. And in one of our other interviews on this series, one of the guests shared not about this specific topic, but they said to continue is to normalize, like to continue doing things is to normalize that behavior. And while it's great to see the first this, the first that, and to see that representation, like you said, there are steps further to go for this. And the first does not mean that's normalized. The first almost sounds exceptional, like where this is the exception to the rule. And obviously we want to, to go past that and go further than that, especially when we're navigating these predominantly white institutions. And so for us as Asian Americans, or for us who inhabit Asian diasporic communities, how do we start to address that? Because yes, we want to see representation and things like everything everywhere all at once are amazing for that specific thing. But even for something, a movie like that, it's like, we're getting all these awards, but where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. Like, is that going to be the last time we see awards or what do we have to do internally to mm -hmm. ensure that we are taking that next step going beyond just that surface level representation? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I've been saying this more so the last year or so that me and my most liberated state is me not really striving and just being really comfortable taking naps all day and being mediocre, right? To not feel yeah. the need and the burden and pressure of, and I feel this, you know, in, in my realm in academia too, because there aren't a lot of Asian American sociologists in my department um, to feel like I have to be the best and excel at everything to be taken seriously. And for my research on Asian Americans to be, you know, seen as legitimate. Um, mm. And I think part of, you know, what's next you know, in an ideal world, um, and maybe even thinking about the next generation, hopefully they don't feel that pressure to be the first because sure. there have been many before them. And like you, and I think you said your guest was saying, it's normalized that Asian right. Americans are in these positions of leadership in these industries. Um, I also think about, I don't know if this answers your question directly, but what got me thinking about this was um, the controversy over beef recently. And that was a very 
Um, I think that was a show that was the a first of its kind. And at the same time, right, these Asian creators, um, these celebrities that I like have parasocial obsessions with, right, were part of this culture and um, community of silence that enables abusers, which we see all over white Hollywood. And so again, internally, I think we need to be thinking about, right, like representation at what cost and what kind of standards of not just excellence in storytelling, but standards of community and integrity are we holding ourselves and each other to? Um, and yeah, I think just really taking, being accountable to each other and to our broader community, particularly in the beef example, right? To broader communities of color and in the very specific example, black women, right? right. Um, taking that kind of accountability and that position of, influence and authority more seriously. Yeah, that accountability piece is so, so important. I'm pretty sure we've mentioned accountability in some form or fashion in every one of these interviews for this, ep- or every one of the episodes for this series. And particularly with beef, it is it does just feel like this unwillingness to hold David Cho, for, for example, specifically accountable for these acts and saying, oh, well, he apologized or even using people as props at to say, this is this is fine now. Like mm-hmm. we've addressed this, he addressed this and now we're moving on. Why would you want to sabotage yeah. this new piece of representation that we have? And again, it goes back to what you said before about like, we want to go beyond that. And I feel like a lot of that starts with, or we get a lot of the actionable items, the steps that we can take to move forward from folks in your industry in mm-hmm. academia. How have you seen that change in your from your perspective as an academic in that institution? Has that changed a lot even over like the last three years? I know you said in the last year you've learned to like kind of find a balance. May I don't know if it's a balance, but find kind of the piece of like, here's how I want to move through the work. Mm-hmm. How have you seen seen that shift in academic spaces specifically? Um, in this regard? Hmm. I think there's multiple, we can look at it at multiple levels, right? Like academia more broadly, when I think about academia and race, I'm like, oh God, everything happening around affirmative action is so (laughs) messy and complicated. Um, And ultimately, I mean, that, this could be, that could be a whole other episode, but um, I think there are a, lot, are a lot of ways that in Asian Americans have felt invisible in broader yeah. society, as well as in academia, both hyper-visible and invisible. And if we take the affirmative action example, and many people much smarter than me have written and thought about this for a lot longer, but a lot of that invisibility has been misguided and even appropriated by conservative white interests to dismantle policies like affirmative action, which historically have helped us access these institutions by painting these very, again, anti-Black narratives that depend on model minority tropes. Um, And so I think like that conversation is happening in academia. For myself as a graduate student, um, I don't know, honestly. I think for me, I just finished my third year in a doctoral program, and I think I think this happens to everyone, um, but the more I go in it and continue and progress, the more disillusioned I become. And mm. the more I think about how in the end, you know, you set up de- offices for DEI, you even recruit faculty of color. Um, 
but systems for tenure and systems for leadership and how decision-making happens are all the same. And they're all the same people, um, all mostly old white men who have given lots of money to these institutions are the ones who make decisions. And those decisions matter because they shape the the actual lived experiences of students from the day to day in terms of what kind of faculty they have access to, what departments they have access to. So there's, for example, you know, um, like humanities is often underfunded. And on top of that, ethnic studies is even more so underfunded. And I would say in many universities under attack, as well. And that to me is not disconnected from the larger ways that education is getting politicized on the K-12 mm-hmm. level as well with CRT and book bans and all this stuff. And so, um, again, I'm like going on a tangent now, but as an American <laughs> in, in the midst of all of this, I have been thinking about, um, do I really, you know, how, what, what kind of communities and what, kind of liberation do I want to invest in? Do I want to just keep succeeding and climbing the ladder and trying to get a place um, in this system and eventually become tenured, which the chances are so, so low, honestly? Uh, Sure. Or what does it look like for me to be in this system, but create imaginary spaces where students and myself can feel safer and more liberated and we can actually get back to the beautiful parts of academia, which is learning and exchanging ideas and challenging and transforming each other, right? Um, so yeah, those are some of the questions I've been thinking about. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Is there, so before we kind of broach more broadly outside of our community, is there a way for us as Asian Americans, maybe not to infiltrate these spaces because I feel like that's kind of what you've already done and you're like, I don't know if I want to be here. Is there a way for us to combat that where it's, are, are do okay, I guess I guess the question is, do we need to build our own systems that stand apart from these things, or do we go in, dismantle from the inside and build anew on top of you know the rubble of white supremacy? Yeah, that's like the million dollar question. <laughs> and I think you know it's not um to me, it's not a binary. Right? Sure, sure, sure. Um, we we have to be everything everywhere all at once, all yeah. of us collectively. Um I think for me on in an individual level, I also know, you know, I, we exist in capitalism. I need to eat. I need to um, have stable sources of income. And that means participating in a lot of these institutions. And at the same time, I think, of, you know, Bell Hooks wrote a lot about this, that the classroom remains a space of possibility in a system yeah. that has relied often on dehumanization and exploitation of people. And so, you know, we have to hold the two intention and... I think figure out, everyone has to figure out for themselves um, what what kind of spaces of influence they want to create or infiltrate. I, I will say I, before my life as a educator and in this world, I actually worked in a evangelical Christian ministry for a long time. And I was okay. really like, um, you know, infiltrate from the inside, try to make change from the <laughs> inside. And um, it, it honestly kind of destroyed my soul, I feel like. Mm. Um, and maybe that's some people's callings, but I think that in that particular context, it was just so homophobic and there were so many power structures in place that felt so toxic that I I feel like I, I lost myself and my sanity and my sense of how I, I even knew how to care for myself because I was so... Um, stubborn and adamant about trying to like change these certain policies within this organization. 
So I think well, and, out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think in those in those situations too, you see sometimes the impact of your work or the work that you're doing, and you know it's really fulfilling and it's uplifting. But it blinds you to the fact that you are not taking care of yourself. Like you can't mm-hmm. give back to yourself in order to then fully show up day after day after day in that yeah. space. Um, so recognizing that, being aware of that, I think is one super powerful. And then was that experience what pushed you into sociology specifically or were you already on the track to like this is where I want to go this is what I want to study this is what I want to pursue um I think it pushed me into it accidentally because I just needed something to do next (laughs) okay okay, Um, okay. I kind of I was leaving that position and kind of accidentally fell into this Asian American studies master's program um in at San Francisco State And, and through there I got exposed to um you know TAing and teaching in the classroom and realizing, oh, I really love doing this. And I, I do, I will say that whole experience with um, the evangelical ministry does shape a lot of my research, though, because a lot of my work mm. now is on how religion and particularly um, conservative religious spaces, spaces like evangelical um, Asian ethnic churches shape how Asian Americans understand themselves, racial categories, racial boundaries. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I think it all wraps nicely into, well, maybe not nicely, but one of the things that really drew me to your work originally, and I kind of mentioned it at the top, was the way that you talked about how we are doing this work together, not with just the multiple communities that make up the Asian diaspora, but across all historically marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. And like that's where the real progress can be made, uh, as opposed to being so hyper-focused on just our one lane, understanding that, oh, we cross over, we intersect with these other communities in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. Um, How do other specifically BIPOC communities work with us to address these hidden or missing pieces of the conversation that we're talking about right now? Because I think that we also, as Asian Americans or as part of that Asian diaspora, have to be willing to engage and work with other communities too. So there's a lot of it on our end. How do those other communities, maybe not reciprocate, but how do they work with us? What do they need to be, or what can they be aware of as they approach this conversation? Yeah. Well, I don't have a prescription for how, but I can, <laughs> I can share some um, experiences when I have felt supported by non-Asian BIPOC folks. Um, yeah. I think about, I actually did a, a session maybe six months ago, latter half of last year um, at a very fancy corporate setting. So I, I share that because I didn't expect it to come out of that <laughs> organization or that business. Um, but they they wanted to do a Black and Asian healing town hall. Um, so one, and it was initiated, that program was initiated by a black woman at that um, organization. And one, it, it was striking to me that it wasn't happening during API month or black history <laughs> month. It's like, oh yeah, we sure. exist other months in the year. <laughs> you gotta like look at your calendar, like, wait a second, yeah. it's September or whatever. It yeah. Is. And like, it was, what's happening? Exactly. <laughs> and it wasn't happening on the heels of some horrific tragedy. Um, and two, you know, they were very intentional about bringing in speakers from both communities um, to facilitate spaces for folks who identify as either group. Um, mm. 
and and then also to to facilitate space for all of us to come together and really exchange stories, um, talk about history. They brought me and another, I, I believe, also sociologist in to give just some background framing of why do we see tension between these communities, supposedly tension, right? Um, and how it's framed often by history and policy and structures, but how it manifests in the in the day-to-day and the interpersonal. Um, and so there were just a lot of ways that that event surprised me in terms of the thoughtfulness um, and the intention to facilitate healing. And again, mm-hmm. this was a very micro example. It was in sure. one workplace. Um, no policy changed. <laughs> Reparations weren't made. You know, like, literally right. maybe nothing drastic happened. But I I feel like for me, I mean, it was even part of my own healing, I feel like, to see that sure. um, people wanted to engage in this way. And Black folks in particular wanted to hear about Asian American experiences of racism and discrimination and also address the hard stuff like anti-Blackness in our communities. And for them to also share things about anti-Asian sentiment in their community and where that comes from, how um, a lot of that often comes from um, family members who are in military who were recruited Mm. to fight imperialist wars for this country and in the process were fed very dehumanizing messages of Asians, right? All of this stuff, it was just like so kind of magically coming together to help us all um, gain more insight and I think empathy and commitment to solidarity with each other. Um, so I, that's that's just one example that I, I felt really encouraged by. But I think beyond that, I just try to think about partnership and mutuality as opposed to you know transactional solidarity where it's like, I show up for you, you show up for me. I repost this and you, you know, instead it's like, you know, to build coalition does require relationships. It's relational right. that accumulates into bigger shifts in power and, and influence. It's a lot of what Adrienne Marie Brown talks about starting small in the micro and in the local. And so I try to think about, again, grounding all of this work in relationships with people who are committed to similar ideals outside of my community. I really appreciate you sharing that, both examples, but specifically that latter one, because this conversation is going to be the wrap up of the series. And the initial conversation that I had with Liz Kleinrock was exactly about that, mm-hmm. was about relationships. How do we build relationships together that can then lead us to do better, stronger, more meaningful, deeper, more impactful work, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't know why I use so many describing adjectives <laughs> there, but um So I think that's really interesting. How do you, or what things do you notice or or do you look for when trying to build those deeper relationships across communities? Are there any specific things that you're like, oh, now I know that this is taking the next step. Like, obviously you said we're working the micro, but is there anything in particular that stands out to you as like, this is a relationship that I want to carry forward? Or is it purely kind of an alignment basis? Like, we are both have the same ideas, the same goals in our purview. And like, this is how we're going to, this is how we're going to start this off. Mm, that's a good question. I think a lot of it is kind of intuitive, like mm. vibes, you know, <laughs> sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, reduce it to that. But I will say I, I'm kind of in the midst of it now. I think having relocated. Okay. I've been here for a few years now, but I mean, making adults as a, making friends as an adult 
is really hard. <laughs> My wife and I talk about that all the yeah, time. Yeah, we have a whole it's podcast so on that. It's, it's really hard, especially if you move um, or you change life stages. And so mm-hmm. I, I moved, I'm about to become a parent. And so I'm kind of in the midst of it now where I'm trying to figure out, you know, what is my community here in Houston locally? And also what is my political home? Because I feel like I need both to do the work I want to do uh, and for the work to not just stay in my head, but to actually be embodied in a right. way. And so one way I, I've tried to start doing that in the last year was, um, just going to events locally uh, and trying to meet people. And and one way I actually met a lot of folks that I really respect and and I try to keep in touch with and connect with is I, there was like a year, year after Atlanta vigil that happened. Um, That was honestly really weird. It was like a lot of applauding the police. It was very Mm. kind of, uh, yeah, it, it wasn't what I expected. Right. Sure. So I, took to Twitter and I was like, was anyone else at this event super uncomfortable? <laughs> Something along those lines. And, um, and it was like a desperate call, a call out for uh, progressive, more abolitionist thinking community in Houston, right? And actually some people responded. And from there, it kind of just iterated itself um, into a book group. We have a Houston Asian abolitionist group chat where people share events or what they're doing or opportunities to be plugged in. Um, And so I think, you know, it's very slow. It's very organic. It's as much as people can give at any given time. But um, just, again, intentional ways like that to try to make connections in my community. I I love that. I love that. Especially at the like the local level. And again, adulting is very difficult, especially when it comes to like developing those new friendships. Mm -hmm. Um, Like our Asian adoptee group here in Indianapolis started coming out of a vigil for Atlanta Mm -hmm. specifically, you know, and like, luckily that one was not praising the police or like it didn't have any of those weird vibes, but it was one of the first times that I realized, oh, there are a lot of other people like me here mm-hmm. who have a similar shared lived experience, maybe not think the same way or whatever it might be. And to see how slowly that group has come together, but now seeing one person join this week or another person joining this week and sharing their stories for the first time, mm-hmm. you know, it means a lot to just be able to build that relationship, not just with another person human being, but someone who literally geographically sits in that same spot, who understands a little bit more of the nuance of what it means to be an adopted Asian in Indiana specifically. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, As far as like community goes, who right now is inspiring you? They they don't have to be part of the community, but who are people right now that you're taking a lot of inspiration from or, or whose work is just really resonating with you? Hmm. Um, I, I read a book a few months ago called Care Work by Leah Lakshmi Pizza. Okay, I'm totally going to butcher their name, but it's Care Work. <laughs> uh, Dreaming Disability Justice. Um, first name is Leah. And I, I think that book, I, I finished it in like maybe January, but I still think about it like multiple months later. Mm. But I think um, they're a queer South Asian disability justice activist and writer. And I think as I, um, I don't know, as I think about all of these things like Asian American politics and identity and community building, I I think that book in particular has really shaped and challenged my thinking about um, 
what it means to care for each other versus mm. dispose of each other. I think we, even in activist communities or organizing spaces, we often resort to this politic of disposability where it's like, if you don't have the right language or you can't offer anything to me tangibly, um, you're kind of seen as less valuable. I've, I've seen mm. that and witnessed that and experienced that in, in my time in these spaces. And I think the book really challenged me through, again, a disability justice lens to think about how we inherently really need each other and we have something to learn from each other and nobody is disposable. Like, obviously nobody's disposable, but again, the way that capitalism like infiltrates our spaces. Right. Um, yeah, it's just challenged my thinking around that. And, and I think also thinking about care work and how care work is so, I think because it's seen as feminine labor, it's so undervalued, mm. undercompensated in this country. And I'm about to, again, like I shared earlier, become a parent, be caretaking, taking time off from my paid work for a while to be caretaking. And so I, I've just, again, been thinking about what it means to um, have a community doing that together what it means for this kind of work to be undervalued, but have always kind of fell on the backs of women of color in this country. Um, and so, yeah, that book has inspired a lot of different rabbit holes for me. <laughs> well, we're definitely going to link that in the show notes and I'm going to be picking up a copy of that because that's the idea of disposability. I think it's super interesting. I'd never heard that before. <laughs> and now I'm thinking about that a lot because I feel like I've been going through, I feel like I'm seeing that a lot yeah. recently, um, just in some of the spaces that I've been, where it does feel very transactional. Yeah. Like, if you can't give me this, then you, I'm not going to include you in this, or I'm not going to feel like you're worth the time to have a conversation. When at the end of the day, I totally agree with you. Like, we, the only way we can do this work is together. Yeah. And the people who are doing the work also deserve to be able to take the time to themselves yeah. when it like when they, when life happens and know that I'm stepping away from the work and mm -hmm. it's still going on. Yeah. Like there's still people who are doing it. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's other parts of the conversation we're missing, like the people who have already done the work and then the people who are currently doing it and building off of the foundations that have already been laid for us in order for us to be able to fight for the things that we're fighting for. Mm -hmm. Um, so I really appreciate that. We will definitely link that there in the show notes. Um, okay. So I have two more questions for you as we kind of wind it down here. The first one being, I've asked everybody this and I feel like all the answers are pretty, have been pretty similar, but people feel a lot of different ways about heritage months. Some people celebrate them. Some people don't. I've written a lot about this and I wanted to ask if you, if you do celebrate or you don't celebrate Asian Pacific American heritage month, and if you feel comfortable enough sharing why or why not would love to hear. Um, it doesn't feel like a celebration to me. <laughs> it sounds bad sure. because it's the time when people are always wanting things from us. I feel like sure. if you're kind of a more sure. public facing person or creator or whatever. Um, I, I also feel like every month is, I don't know, every, every month, every day of the year is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I think honestly, in terms of celebrating, I mean, one thing I'm trying to do in, in this season in general of my life, preparing for this transition is to um, say no to things and choose out of things mm. and take a lot of naps and nest and rest and <laughs> just take care of myself. Um, very different from the last few years where I was trying to take on a lot of speaking engagements. And I was like, this is sure. my time to hustle because suddenly the white gaze cares about us. Right. <laughs> um, and I... 
you know, I, I think there will be a time for that maybe later down the road if I sure. engage in that way. But I think for right now, I'm just really feeling the need to actually kind of turn inward. Um, and I don't know, just take care of my own self and community. And yeah. Absolutely. Nest and Rest, a book about self-care, I think is a really good book title. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Might have to steal that. Um, what's anything giving you anything specific, actually, anything specific giving you joy right now? Um, just from a communal sense or just in the work that you're doing? Or maybe in your personal life. I guess you don't have to get personal if you don't want. <laughs> I don't know why I took it that yeah. way. <laughs> no, I mean, again, my life is a lot about just um because I have a baby coming in like less than two months uh, preparing for that. And so I think one thing giving me joy, but also challenging me is um, all the people who have kind of come around us to support this transition. And Mm. again, really recognizing, I mean, right now it's kind of theoretical because the baby isn't here yet, but but already kind of recognizing it's going to take a lot of, it's going to take a village and that's how it's going to be in a lot of our cultures and communities we weren't meant to raise children in these like isolated individualist right. nuclear families. And so I, I feel very thankful that, you know, we have fa- extended family and people around us. And I also feel challenged because it's very hard for me to ask for help and to, you know, I believe in that we're all interconnected and we all need each other. I believe those things but when it comes to my life, it's very hard to actually practice that. And so, Yeah. Totally resonate with that. (laughs) Totally, totally resonate with that. And I I love that about taking the village to to when it comes to raising your children. Uh, I remember when I first read Britt Hawthorne's book about Mm -hmm. or raising anti-racist children. That's like one of the first things she talks about Mm -hmm. is like how they how she transitioned to homeschool. Why and why it's not just her and her partner doing this learning and leading this in in terms of care, but it's all of her community, yeah. like the community that she's surrounded and found herself in, which I love. And, and I love that you named that as well. Um, how do we support you? How do we, how do we support your work and, and the things that you're doing moving forward, knowing that you're going to be, you know, taking a lot of care and time to yourself and spending that with your family, any, anything that we can do specifically to support you moving forward? Yeah. Um, thank you for asking that. I, I think I I will be, I'm kind of just preparing myself to enter this like hibernation (laughs) mode. And so I don't have any, honestly, that much like work coming out in the next six months that people can buy or read, (laughs) but you know, like let's stay in community. If people want to talk about these things, like what it looks like to make community around, you know, our shared values, um, how to make friends as an adult. Like I'm always willing to have those conversations but yeah, I mean, otherwise, just thankful for the space and conversation. And I think, yeah, how I feel supported is just knowing that, like, like you said, this work continues to happen. I'm just one small piece of a much larger tapestry um, working on all these things and telling stories. So I love that. Thank you for saying that and sharing that. And folks, get out there and keep doing the work so Bianca can spend time with her family, <laughs> be a parent, rest. Uh, nest and, and do all of that wonderful uh, self-care and family care that we need to have happen. Bianca, it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to sit here and have this conversation with you, to, to take a little bit of your time today to be able to share this conversation with our guests. It really, really means a lot to me, not only to have you on the show, but to be a part of this specific series, the APAM conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Patrick. This was so fun. And I'm looking forward to listening to all of your episodes. <laughs> 
Thank you so much. That is making me beam and smile and, and, <laughs> and warming me inside. Thank you. That really, really, really means a lot. Um, for everybody else out there listening, you can find links to everything that we've talked about here in the show notes. And you can find us at Conversation Pod Piece on Instagram. If you do feel inclined to leave a rating or review on whatever podcast player you're listening to, we would greatly appreciate it. And if you're interested in supporting the show in the future in any way, feel free to hop in my DMs or visit my website, patrickintheworld.me. Until next time, I'm Patrick Armstrong, and this has been Conversation Piece. Thanks, Bianca. Thank you.